0: Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new headphones? Do you need some listening devices, Uh, things to listen to things with? You know what I'm talking about? Go to tweakedaudio.com and get 33% off of any purchase when you enter the offer code People O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Go to tweakedaudio.com, enter that offer code, get 33% off of whatever you buy. It's a great deal, tweakedaudio.com. These are earbuds, these are headphones, you can listen to things with them. Go and get some, oh my God.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think
1: it's really beautiful. (sighs) Gee, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, Right. folks. Here we go
0: again. This is it. This is other people. This is uh, recorded in a room infested with wasps. This is uh, what you've decided to consume. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I'm uh, very excited about today's program. Actually, I should say, too, Walter is in the room with me. I think this is the first time I've ever actually allowed him in here. So if you hear any uh, dog noises, heavy breathing, uh, it's him. So uh, Lydia Yuknovich is my guest today. She's been on this podcast before. Uh, I'm having her back a second time. And uh, her new novel, The Small Backs of Children, is out there now from Harper, and uh, it is uh, generating all sorts of buzz. It is earning all sorts of plaudits. It is the official July pick of the Nervous Breakdown book club. The NervousBreakdown.com, for those of you who don't know, is my online uh, literary community slash uh, literary website. You know what I'm talking about. The TheNervousBreakdown.com. Walter, Bye down. Uh, yeah, so The Nervous Breakdown It's a website, it's a literary website That I started almost 10 years ago It has its own book club And if you want to sign up for that Just go to thenervousbreakdown.com Click on book club in the menu bar You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days For only $9.99 a month That's less than the cost of a book Do the math So there's no baby yet There's no name yet, nothing's changed We're still waiting My wife is very uncomfortable The other day I went hiking uh, with my daughter. I've been doing a lot with my daughter, you know, both because my wife is uh, very pregnant and also very busy with work. Uh, But just, you know, I'm trying to take on more of the duties with respect to our daughter. So uh, this past weekend I took her hiking, as I often do. It's kind of a thing we do. And uh, I was taking her hiking, and we, uh, we went up this trail, beautiful view of the Pacific Ocean, beautiful day sailboats out on the water seagulls in the distance circling good visibility very little smog very blue skies and uh, we get to this bench there's a bench that looks out over uh, this entire gorgeous vista down to uh, Santa Monica Venice Beach and uh, we're sitting there side by side father and daughter my daughter's four uh, going on five And, uh, we're sitting there. We're a little tired after the hike. We're going to have a snack and uh, I'm just kind of sitting there next to her. We're having a moment. Taking it in. And, uh, I was processing it in my head. I was like, okay, this is a good moment. You do that as a parent, or at least I do. You know, you have these moments and you're like, okay, just, I got to notice this. I'm having a good moment. This is a good one register it be be appreciative and uh we're kind of quiet you know it's this moment of silence the grandeur of uh, nature is before us and uh, then out of nowhere my uh, sweet uh, child my daughter looks up at me and she's like daddy and I'm like yeah and she's like can you have a baby in your belly when you're in jail Completely out of nowhere. Unprompted, I, you know. <laughs> that's what kids do to you sometimes. They just hit you with these things. It's really uh, interesting, you know, to think uh, about what uh, what goes on in their little brains. Because that's a very layered thought. It's a layered question. Why is she thinking about jail? What's Why is prison suddenly on the brain? As we sit here looking out at the horizon. And then you're like, oh well, I mean I guess it's technically possible for a woman to be pregnant in prison. It's not ideal. This is the way that I answer questions for my kid. <laughs> Let's try to take it at face value. Yeah, I mean it could be done. It's not what you would uh it's not what you would want. Are you worried about mommy going to jail? No. So why are you thinking about that? I don't know. I just was. So that happened. Hey, uh, do you have the other people app? I got to remind you there, get the other people app. If you don't have it, it's free. Get it wherever you get your apps. The most recent 50 episodes will then be waiting for you on your device. You get 50 episodes for free. And then if you want to sign up for premium, you get access to every episode. It's a, for a pittance, it's very cheap and you can sign up for premium right there within the app. So get the app. The app is free. You get 50 episodes for free. And then if you want to get at the archives and hear conversations that I've had with authors like uh, Cheryl Strayed and Susan Orlean and Tom Parada and Jonathan Lethem, George Saunders, just sign up for premium support the show. My guest once again is Lydia Yuknovich. Uh, I just got the uh, chance to see her read here in Los Angeles downtown at the last bookstore. She was uh, reading there with XTX and Roxane Gay and uh, Wendy C. Ortiz all of whom have appeared on this program and I uh, got to meet Lydia in person. I've had two at this point, uh, interviews with her and, uh, both of which were conducted, uh, from a distance. I couldn't, we couldn't make the scheduling work to get her in here in person. So, uh, we did it over, uh, the internet, over Skype. We talked, and uh, she's just one of those people who you have a conversation with her and you you connect. She's great at connecting. I feel like Lydia knows how to connect and I wanted to meet her. So I drove downtown got a chance to introduce myself and uh, it was just fun feel like i know her i think i do i think you're gonna feel like you know her after you hear this that's my prediction so uh here she is folks this is lydia yuknovich her new novel one more time is called the small backs of children the uh, official july pick of the nervous breakdown book club available now from harper this is lydia (laughs)
1: You know, those famous photos we're all familiar with that have been taken in war zones and conflicts.
0: Like the Malai Massacre or whatever. Exactly, exactly.
1: That's probably the first one I remember in my lifetime. Um, But then more recently, the green-eyed Afghani girl. Right. And the child who's starving to death crouched on the ground next to a vulture. Um, who's, you know, near death, and the vulture's just sort of waiting. (laughs) Um, And so the question you're asking is the question I wanted to hold open. I don't have some perfect answer, but I do have a deep obsession with the question, you know, what is, do we have any responsibility as the people who make the representations to move in with agency and not just making the representations? Um, and I have those questions for the photographers. (laughs) I, I, I don't know what I'd do if I was the person. However, I know when my father, who was our abuser in our family was floating face down in the ocean, I could have let him die. And for whatever reason, I couldn't do that. I flipped him over and saved his life. What happened? He lived. No, I know, and but what,
0: what, why was he floating face down in the ocean? He
1: he never learned to swim, and he was sort of half-ass body surfing in the waves, and he toppled over face down and drowned. And I'd been a lifelong competitive swimmer, and I was about maybe 15 yards from him, and I busted ass over there and pulled him out, and my sister was there too, and we gave him mouth to mouth. So I've been in the life death moment is part of my point. And I can't imagine in your example you gave, I can't imagine leaving a kid there (laughs) or, you know, not doing anything, not giving them food, not grabbing them and trying to smuggle them away or whatever it was. On the other hand, part of the, um, not I made in the book is that that American benevolent impulse to save has its own complications.
0: Well, I was just going to say, because I, I think I've seen uh, news reports about child prostitutes Yes. who in their horrible situations become so brainwashed. I mean, that's the life they know. Right. And there are attempts made you know, to save these, these children. They don't want to leave. <laughs> right. And so right. it becomes this kind of like, uh, almost embarrassing situation where you're trying to pull this kid out of this, uh, you know, brothel, and the kid is telling you, "Leave me alone." And you know, uh, trying to make sense of that is is just another puzzle.
1: Right. And in the terms we're talking about, I'd I'd want to do it anyway. I'd want to just well, you'll it'll be okay later. So just yeah,
0: you'll figure <laughs> okay. it out.
1: Or you're coming with me. Uh, but, you know, I tried to complicate that. I don't want to give the whole plot away, but I, I also think there are some blind spots to a the very American savior complex that we don't always think through and we don't always understand cultural differences. Um, and I'm trying to, you know, raise that as a question, too. What does it mean? How do you save someone and how do you treat someone as an equal and not as the object of your saving power? Well yeah
0: that that happens to me in strip clubs or at least I used to. <laughs> you need to go back to school and these girls are just like, Shut up, dude. Just give me your money.
1: I'm right with you though, because I mean those are some of the guest speakers I have in my women's studies class. Yeah. And and that's a two-way effort. I'm both trying to educate the students that this is real in life and it's a choice for particularly women. But I'm also secretly trying to show show the classroom <laughs> to some people. In the hopes I can seduce them, I'm right with you, buddy.
0: Yeah. Okay. So this <laughs> is this. This brings up interesting questions for me because um, I think there is such a thing as someone having insight or an ability to help. You know, that another person. That seems obvious to me.
1: Yes.
0: Um. I guess it gets trickier when you get into like quote unquote spiritual insight. You know, somebody who might have a you know some kind of wisdom that could really help somebody. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then getting into the, into a, uh, an interpersonal situation where you're trying to, uh, transfer that wisdom, share it, you know, the person has to be a willing recipient and it can get tricky, you know, no matter how desperately they might need it, no matter how clearly you might see that they need it. Sometimes they don't want it.
1: Oh, I think that's true. I think that's, uh, has to do with our inability to understand the other in front of us and, what their subjectivity involves and what their reality involves, and how do I learn their language and their world, what we often do is bring our entire matrix upon them. and this will probably get me in trouble, but I think the the Christian impulse across the world you know to go in and convert and save and proselytize is a is a spiritual impulse gone awry from my point of view that it's moved into a zone of so canceling out the value system or beliefs or dreams or imagination of the other that it's it's an act of colonization and if you want to cut that out you can't
0: no 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 I'm I'm I'm, I think I I think I'm right there with you I know what's occurring to me and like what I've you know been saying to myself in recent years and what I've said on this show before is that uh, when it comes to that sort of stuff I'm much more trusting of someone sharing with me an action plan than a belief system. Yes. Like I'd, I'd be much more liable to be like, Lydia, teach me how to swim. Cause I know you're yes. a big swimmer than yeah. to have, than to have you some, you know, somehow teach me, uh, you know, this belief system you have about what happens to us when we die or, you know, yes. you know what I'm saying? Like belief is exactly belief is tricky, but an action plan, something to do some sort of practice that could help, Uh, make me manage stress better or feel better or sleep better or all of the above. Like that seems more legitimate
1: to me. Right. Because the one is ideological and the other is a form of direct action. Yes. (laughs) I don't think everybody agrees with us though. So we shouldn't feel too sassy. And also in this book I wrote, the let's see, I don't want to, the Americans who move into quote unquote hell run into their own problems. (laughs) So they pursue the direct action line. And that, as you suggested earlier, turns out to be a little more complicated when this girl, who they are benevolently moving in to save, you know, has her own will and has her own ideas.
0: Yeah. Well, and Uh, like I think too about like activism. Yes. uh, Social activism, like people who are working for the cause of peace or something like that. Uh, A lot of times, very angry people. Yeah. And, 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 you know, justifiably in some cases. There's injustice out there. And I think a lot of times injustice is what wakes people up to those kinds of causes and gets them involved. Sure. Um, But it it becomes problematic, I think, if you're an angry person working for peace.
1: I don't... Can I... Can I... I don't know if I agree with that. Okay. I'm thinking through it right this second. I remember when... So, you know, we've, there have been recent instances of what's been called rioting uh, here in our country. Sure. Around particularly um, what's been happening in the black community. And as I've been processing that and trying to listen and learn, uh, nine times out of ten, I found myself on the side of the anger and the side of the, you know, rage manifesting to a certain extent and I kept equating it in my mind to stonewall because that was something in my lifetime I cared about where people got really angry and said no and stood up and you know that was kind of a riot
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: (laughs) and so it's not that I disagree with you it's I think it's a little more nuanced in terms of social action I think there is a space for anger or rage and it might even be a little necessary um it's if it gets stuck there right that that worries me more do you know what i mean
0: no exactly i was like the thing that i was just going to say is sustainability like i think it's it's totally natural especially like in a situation um you know like ferguson or baltimore all these all these different instances stonewall whatever it is you know where some um there's a lot of injustice, you know. The reacting to injustice with rage, and and if you're being uh, abused, standing up to your abuser, right, and putting your foot down is yes. ex- is acceptable.
1: Yeah, it's um, a it's a language of a sort, from my point of view.
0: Well, right, and and then I also think of it from a media perspective because, um, you know, the, the news media wasn't covering this stuff nearly as intently, and it wasn't nearly as. Um, you know, as uh visible on social media until people started putting their foot down. You know? Correct,
1: correct. <laughs> and, and you know, even in our lifetime I don't know how old you are. Are you in...
0: almost forty.
1: Okay. So um wow, I'm really old. <laughs>
0: well, I'm feeling it too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, it gets really good after. 50. <laughs> you have no idea. I um I remember though historically in my own understanding of current events, feeling really strongly, and I I feel this today too, that there was no MLK Jr. without Malcolm X, that the two of them were both necessary in my mind for peace to emerge or change, I guess, not peace, but change to emerge. And I I feel compelled to carry that uh, belief forward that, we need the spectrum, you know, the anger and the peaceful march and the prayer, and and there's a necessary place for all of it, in yeah. order for actual change to occur.
0: Yeah, I just, I and I, I can't say that I disagree. I guess I just worry about like, uh, how much anger and to what and to what degree. Do you know what I'm saying? Because if it's spir- if it spirals uh, to you know past a certain point, I think it becomes self defeating, and then suddenly you're hurting the cause. I hear you. Uh, you're supposed to, you know, to want to advance.
1: I hear you and I know what you're talking about. But so that's what I mean when I'm sitting around thinking through or watching or even standing in that situation, I often default to the well, revolution means turnover. Yeah. <laughs> and some <laughs> CVS stores might have to go down. Uh, you know, right. I'm just being honest. I find myself defaulting to that. Right. Kind of renegade <laughs> or rebel, and I understand it could mean some destruction. In the in the novel, I I try to play with that idea that creation and destruction are always operating together.
0: No, yeah, like Yeah, I mean, like in like the notions of, of birth and death coexisting. Yes, you know? yes, yes, yes. That's yes. something that I think about a lot and uh, take comfort in. You know, maybe yes. maybe strange comfort, but it it seems to be. Uh, you, you know, uh, all around us. Like, it's yes. it's very easy to confirm just by looking around or thinking about your own body, you know? Correct. And yet we miss it. <laughs> um, I think Well, some... we're,
1: we're busy. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> well, but it's easy we to, to separate... buy our lattes. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, I'm tweeting. I don't have time for this birth and death exactly. co-
1: coexist stuff, but. Right, right. I mean, that's the whole impulse of this book I wrote is to try and open that uh, tension up. Okay. I mean, you just, you just nailed it. <laughs> oh,
0: okay. Well, and, uh, and like grief, you know, which is a, a theme that runs through your work. It's something that you, um, have experienced, uh, very intensely, um, mm-hmm. you know, the loss of your child, which we talked about the the first time you were on this show. Right. Um, and for those of, you know, for those listeners who, who might not, um, know your history, could you just briefly, uh, explain what you went oh,
1: through? Oh, sure. Sure. Uh, so my daughter died the day she was born, and so I had the unusual but not exclusive experience of sort of holding life and death in my arms in the same moment, and as deeply sad and devastating as that was. Uh, this many years away from it, what I realize is that that changed me forever. In terms of my understanding of life and death cycles and that actually has translated to the shape of the page for me because i no longer see beginnings and endings as existing on you know the time as an arrow model or linear model and as you said a second ago i understand birth and death as coexisting in the same moment and so Since then, I've been kind of asking narrative questions as well as life questions. You know, well, what does that mean? How would it change anything? So it's an idea that's changed my life and how I live and love people. But it's also an idea that forever changed my writing. I've never gone back to the traditional forms I inherited. That moment just wrenched me out of one kind of writing and catapulted me forever (laughs) into another. How many years ago was this? um that happened in 1985.
0: Okay. And so all these years later, um it's still, you know, uh, a concern of yours creatively, which I can completely understand. It's not something that you ever get over, it's not something no. that you ever move past, but I am curious, you know, with the passage of time, having written um uh, a memoir uh, about it, having now written two novels and, you know, having processed it through your art um many times over and through many years. Like, has it gotten any easier? Do you feel, I don't know, like, do, like does this deeper understanding of birth and death coexisting um has it brought you some sort of comfort that you previously didn't have, or is it just kind of a, a pain and a scar that you live with? Yeah, and, and it, that and that's it. I mean, you know, is there any, is there any reprieve?
1: Does it get better? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, it doesn't get better, but it changes forms. And I can't be the only one in the world who thinks this way. I think it's something you learn to live with. Loss is something we all, at some point, learn to live with unless we surrender. Um, And so what has happened instead is that my grief has changed forms. And I am able to address my grief and my loss by moving towards self-expression which i think artists know more deeply than anyone uh, that that it's not a salve it's not it doesn't fix anything or permanently close or cure but it it keeps you going it it gives you a way to move through the world and for example what i found is that i can write about in this book and in the next two books I'm working on, I can open up the metaphor and the question, What is a girl? which is a recurring refrain in this book. And there's shit in there. <laughs> there's like a, a whole multitude of artistic possibility just in that question. And so, even though this sounds kind of seancey or weird, it, it feels like it's something she gave to me a way to explore artistically. And enter, you know, the underworlds of the imagination and death and life and creatively, even though I have to live with this big ouch the rest of my life. Uh, if that, I don't have any idea if that made any sense. No, all.
0: it did. It did. And, and what I think, too, I mean, it made actually uh, very clear sense. And I think that people who read you and especially those who read and then respond to you. I have to imagine you hear from readers. I do. <laughs> and that's got to be gratifying because, you know, when you think about the work that goes into writing a book, um, it's very labor intensive. It's hard work to, to make a book and uh, to make one well and to do it and then to send it out into the world. Uh, it might find. A few hundred readers it might find several thousand you just you, you kind of don't know um, yeah it can't really be too much of a concern while you're making it or you'll drive, no. you, drive yourself crazy but however many people read and respond um, when you get that kind of when you get really uh, heartfelt feedback from somebody with whom your work has connected and maybe brought some sense of solace to um, that has to make you feel really good
1: it makes me, here's what, it, well, I'm a recovering Catholic, so feeling really good is a tough
0: one. Well, me, me too, me too. So.
1: <laughs> but it, here's what it does make me feel. It makes me feel useful. And I think I have a kind of goal in any book I write, it, can this be of use to somebody? Or can you feel something different in your body than you do on a daily basis just going through your life? Or can somebody else telling their story make you feel less like a freak or less like an outcast? I'm more interested in use value than I am in, you know, kind of gratification impulses. And even when you said writing a book is hard, it is hard. It's laborious. And a lot of times people think if you just tell your story, boom, you're done. (laughs) It's like it's going to sell and be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And it isn't that. It is labor. It's over and over again and crafting and that whole thing. But you know what? Compared to being on road crew and going to jail, it's not hard. So I also have a good dipstick for the difference between labor and labor. Right. <laughs> and I, I, you know what I mean. I feel pretty lucky that I get to sit alone in a room and, you know, struggle and agonize over artistic questions because I've had other experiences in my life and a period of homelessness, for example, that was hard. Th- this is privilege. How long to- were you homeless for? Um, a little over a year, which is tiny. I mean, tiny compared to the community. Where, I mean, where did it's you live? a
0: blip. <laughs> kind of, but a year's still a long time to live outside.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know. The Northwest is pretty mild. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely. Yeah, well, and there's a there's a strong community um, that pe- not everybody is aware of, really strong community of people trying to keep each other alive. And I got to say, it's kind of like I think of going to the space of grief and loss as an actual place you can go to and you can learn things you can't learn any other way. And I think of of having been arrested and jail and tough times in living situations as real places I went to where I gained knowledge. And I would go as far as to say that these are places I've been to that gave me more knowledge than the fancy PhD I have.
0: Well yeah. Yeah. I mean it's like it and this is you know, it sounds a little cliche, but I was thinking about this the other day. You know, you go through really tough losses. Everyone will eventually. Yes. If it hasn't, yes. if it hasn't happened to you yet, I, I hate to break it to you, but it's coming. You know? Agreed. Agreed. And, and I was thinking about losses in my life and friends I've lost and, you know, things like that. And um, as brutal as it was, uh, those experiences were uh, pivotal yeah. in in making me who I am today. And certainly... Um, pivotal in setting me on a course that uh, made me, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking at? I'm not trying to sugarcoat. I'm just saying that it made me confront very important questions and things that really deepened my life and improved my life, um, yes. e- even though it was really painful. And so it gets complicated when you really dig into it. You know, like if you could go back in time, it's like, yeah, I really wish we, I wouldn't have lost that person, obviously. Yes, Um, but what would my life look like had that not happened? And I don't know. It gets it gets complicated when you. It
1: it does, and I I can hear this happening just as you're talking too. One of the things we move toward when we try to talk about it is uh, we we our language starts moving into the Christian narrative we've inherited. So you know, like suffering makes you stronger, and there's a reason for all, (laughs) and (laughs) so you know what I mean. And some of us. Well, I'll just speak about myself. I'm self-consciously trying to resist falling into those narratives that have been passed down to us because I, I'd i rather put my energy into something else, back to what we were talking about before. I'd rather move toward direct action or showing people that self-expression is better than self-destruction or, you know, let's go build this house for this person. <laughs> Or um, some form of energy we can share and move around. uh, Because I think the, you know, I am a stronger person now narrative has a passivity to it that we have to be vigilant about. We have to make sure, you know, transcending the difficult thing and processing the grief isn't where we stopped, you know? Sure. And I I feel like the, the goal should be to process it, deal with it. Notice that there are those standing next to you who have also experienced it. Yes. And do something with it. Right. Besides look up and pray. I, I guess I'm it, my bias is really coming out.
0: <laughs> well, but it's biased towards action rather than belief. Like yeah, bias towards I love the idea of, you know, self-expression versus self-destruction.
1: Yeah. So, it's...
0: and speaking of self-expression, uh having written many books uh, you know, over the course of your career. And now this is your second novel, correct?
1: Yeah. Uh, yes. I okay. think for a second. Yeah,
0: I'm sure that, I mean, there might be one in the drawer, but this is the second one that's out, right? Yes. Um, has it gotten any easier?
1: Oh, <laughs> here's why it doesn't get easier. So, you know, you hone your skill set and you you sort of become a stronger writer, let's say. But then what happens is, the creative questions you're interested in, you, you reach for more challenging ones. So then you're really back at a starting place of jumping off a cliff because innovation puts you in that novice place back again. So so there's really never uh it gets easier point <laughs> if <laughs> if your goal is to change and grow as you write forward. I don't think that's everyone every writer's goal, but it's it's some of our goal. And um so you see what I mean? As you reach for weirder questions in your writing and you press on different artistic uh explorations, you're you're continually remaking yourself as the novice or the space monkey as Chuck would say.
0: Yeah. Ch- Chuck Chuck
1: <laughs> Yes, that Chuck. Okay. So is there another
0: Chuck? Yeah, right. He's the he's the one. He goes he's a first name author, just Chuck. Yeah. Um, so when you say you, you reach for freakier questions or more difficult questions earlier, you said that this, uh, you know, your new novel works on the question. What is a girl?
1: That's one of the questions. Okay.
0: What is a girl? Did you find out?
1: (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I guess, uh, somewhere in there, I wanted to turn the volume up on the idea that, We're complicit in how our children turn out. And I don't just mean parents. I mean, we're making a world where our children are the ones who are going to have to deal with the fallout of all our shitty choices. And uh, America isn't the victim on this list. I'm, I'm more talking about the children in the rest of the world who outnumber us by far. And, you know, who's going to tell their story? Who's going to ask, you know, how are they supposed to develop any kind of identity in the rubble we've created of the rest of the world? I have no trouble understanding how young people or teens in the Gaza Strip grow up feeling like they have no choice but violence. I have no trouble understanding that. I mean, this is the world we made for them. And then we, we point a finger at them like they're evil when they stand up inside what we've given them to build an identity out of. And and so when I address the question, what is a girl? I'm a woman. Last time I checked. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think gender is a hoax and I'm pretty fluid in my own identification. I'm worried about, in particular, the scripts that girl children you know, are born into and the choices laid out before them. And I know there are rebel girls all around the world and thank oceans there are, but I think I, I'm worried about what we're feeding them, you know, what we're giving them as options. And I, I ha- I'm i going to get in trouble for this too, but I I want there to be the possibility for them to carve their own paths and not just want to go the Kardashian or Beyonce root <laughs> right. um and i know that's a reductive thing to say and that's that's sort of um a hot topic way of saying it but there are girls and boys and everyone in between in the world who are having to forge identities from a pile of shit.
0: right and so you we need to give them better pathways better stories better yes
1: or or get the fuck out of the way and let them forge identities that we learn from. Because as a teacher, I've witnessed the beauty and the intensity and the fire of the teen. <laughs> and why we try so hard culturally to shut that energy down and corral them into good citizenship is an endless, endless, you know, thorn for me. I, I wrote a book called Dora, a head case that's about a teen girl that... You know, she's a dream girl because she just she shits upon all cultural scripts handed to her. And uh, I'm a big fan of that age person. I think we should listen to them harder instead of trying to turn them into good and bad, good and good girls and good boys. I agree. I
0: agree completely. I think good. Yeah. No, I mean, I've had arguments with friends about this before because I've I've said similar things and I've had people push back and say, you know what? I was an idiot when I was 17. Uh,
1: Yeah, that's the cliche, right? Right. When we act out and that's when we rebel and so forth. But if you hand a teen a canvas or a piece of paper, lo and behold, you know, something fascinating comes out. And why that's the exact moment we decide to start curbing their behavior is baffling to me. I mean, I think we've gone about it the exact opposite, wrong way.
0: <laughs> well, and it's also like a time when I think people still uh, have a lot of uh, beautiful idealism. Not that you can't have it later, but um, you know, you have this brain that is able to absorb. I don't think there's any time in your life, if I know my biology properly uh, or correctly where you can absorb information faster. You know, like the teen or the adolescent brain is just like this big sponge and it's like it's operating at maximum capacity. And then, you know, people, unless they've lived a really hard childhood, which is entirely possible, don't tend to be uh, quite so embittered. Like life hasn't gotten to them maybe in ways that it gets to people later. And, Uh, There's kind of a wide openness. You know, it's like that freshman in college thing where you're in your dorm, like asking all those questions. Like, there's a part of me that like, I just want to, I want to stay there. I love that. Like people, (laughs) people laugh at it and people make fun of those conversations they had on their, you know, shitty thrift store couch in their dorm room. But (laughs) I think like, that's a great place to be, you know, like I'm, I find myself more troubled by the fact that we're not sitting around asking those big questions more often it's like somehow you know you've arrived when you've moved past that stuff like oh i don't even you know i don't trifle with that anymore it's like well you don't you're not yeah you know like like birth and death are happening at the same time you're not interested in like sitting with that and like talking with that you know talking about that yes that's not just like the idle chatter of a bunch of stoners you know like that's right that's deep reality and it's way i think it's way more interesting and important than like you know what the kardashians are doing or what the stock market is doing or you
1: know Secular amen. I completely agree with that. I mean, that zone of angst is like an ocean of possibility and imagination, even though it's also dramatic angst.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh,
1: And yeah, the idea that we need to get past that and leave that and grow out of that and mature from that is, is, we do need to evolve and develop as mammals, but I, we got to take some of that with us and encourage those who come after us to bring it with them you know don't shut it down that's when you become the zombie citizen yeah that, well, that's well, when you become the you know the passive recipient
0: right well I mean I remember somebody asking Kurt Vonnegut uh, there was like an interview he did and they were asking about his appeal to young people and whether or not that was intentional and I'm paraphrasing but he said something to the effect of, of well yeah you know I want to I definitely want to speak to young people and I want to get to them before they become, uh, you know, the secretary of defense or right. <laughs> whatever I know, it is. But we
1: got one shot at this. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like
0: it's much hard, it's much harder to reach people with like radical ideas about peace and love and understanding when they, they're already like, you know, deep into a career, uh, as like a weapons manufacturer or whatever correct. it is, you
1: know, correct. And I, actually, you've hit on why I haven't quit teaching yet. Because I, I think I've, I'm in my 27th year or something like that. I've never done anything in my life that long, so it's really weird. Um, but I, I hold on to the idea that if I can reach just two of them in a room of 30, that's better than nothing. Yeah. <laughs> like I feel I feel like I'm I'm more useful there than even when I go to the polls and vote, which I always do. But, you know, I can feel the usefulness when I'm watching a kid go from, I don't know how to write, I don't know how to think, I don't know how to do this, I hate myself, to walking out the door with a sense of self-esteem and a story they wrote that made them feel like they were worth a crap. I mean, it's like a shot at, you don't have to go that other way. (laughs) So I agree with you. I think that's when when to meet people, when to talk to them.
0: And I want to go back to what you said earlier about the fluidity of gender, Um, (laughs) because I'll be able, and I I guess I'll try to tie it thematically into another uh, big concern of your uh, writing, which is the body. And, and, you know, the fluidity fluidity of gender seems to be in the ether right now, like people are really thinking it through maybe more deeply than they were before. And I got to be, I got to confess, this confuses me to a degree. I find Mm -hmm. myself starting to think about fluidity more broadly. And I, you know, this story about this woman who thought she was black and she was working for the NAACP, even though she had two white parents. And then I read an essay about the fluidity of race. And I'm starting to think of like, okay, where does this, like, I guess, is everything fluid? Uh, Mm -hmm. How does the fluidity of gender, how do you conceptualize that? Let's start there.
1: Well, you, you should be worried. (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, I guess what, where I fall on it is, and I'll answer the question, I promise, but this fluid, new fluidity we're experiencing in more than one arena, um, that we're struggling with it, I think is important. And I think it's okay that we're struggling with it. I think it's a stage we need to move through the struggle. So I'm not, I'm not quick to shut it down in myself and, you know, come up with an answer. Like, are you for that woman you mentioned or <laughs> against her? Right. You know? I think it might be more important that we hold the question open longer and struggle with it so that, for example, you know, if you're the oppressed class of people and a moment opens where people open the question up, what is race? And you finally get to step in and have a voice and talk about that in a way the whole culture can finally hear. That's not a bad thing. Right. That's a good thing. And so I'm kind of glad we're in this tense, confusing place where nobody really knows the answer, but we're all talking about it. We all have anxiety about
0: it. Yeah.
1: I think we kind of need that because the alternative has been to walk around thinking we know. And that has made many people invisible. And I'm, that's worse. So there's that.
0: Yeah. 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 So, okay. I'm with and- you. I think, okay. I, think, I, think com- I think I think the i think i think the i think the conversation is super important i'm like, yeah. I'm hungry for it personally just because i am trying to make sense of it myself, so I'm always well, looking- it's
1: gonna it's gonna get even more uncomfortable as we go, so we have to fortify yeah <laughs> and in terms of the question you asked me personally and gender fluidity and my writing and what the hell I'm talking about, I just think there's more to our bodies and the stories available, the stories generated from our corporeal experience, then we've been led to believe. And so I'm willing to go explore what those stories are, and I don't need it to yield a perfect body or a perfect life or a perfect woman or a perfect man. I'm just interested in the idea that we can rewrite these things, we can reimagine these things, And what if that's part of our evolution? And what if that's, you know, the story we were meant to live? Although I don't think there's a story we were meant to live. (laughs) But, you know, I I think we're at an amazing time where the question is becoming more important than the answer. And I love that idea. I Mm -hmm. live that idea. I'm much more interested in holding open difficult questions than arriving at a conclusion or an answer I hope we, I hope more of us live the questions harder and longer before we arrive at, I know the answer and I shall dictate it to it all.
0: Well, and you know, like just to, I mean, just to go even maybe deeper and and to make this even more complex, but uh, I think what I, what I start to think about when it comes to gender fluidity and questions of identity and who we are, questions of race and maybe Mm -hmm. possibly racial fluidity, just any of these things is um, something not dissimilar from birth and death coexisting and and happening simultaneously. And I think what the word that I would use uh, is interbeing, things co-arising, you know, there's...
1: Aren't these great words?
0: They are. I mean, I think, and I think they're under, (laughs) I think underused because when you think about uh, uh, an individual person, you know, I'm... Brad, I'm a guy. I'm a man, but and you and you're Lydia, and you're a woman. But sort of, sort of. But we're both, <laughs> but, but you know, both of us made from both man and woman. Yes, It, you know, that's how people are made. So I certainly have a strong element of the female in me, like not only my mother, but my female ancestors, my grandmother, my great grandmother. That seems to make sense to me. I'm carrying that right female energy within me somewhere. It right. can't. It can't. It's, I'm not just like it's not like two men made me, and I'm a hundred percent man.
1: Right. And so. so it's not that far elite from what you just said to the idea that if you embrace that idea, there might be choice involved in terms of what identity you claim and live. Right. I mean, it's just, it's a question, it's an idea, but it's not hard for me to understand anymore how someone steps into that and says, no, you're wrong, and here's why. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it really isn't that hard to understand for me.
0: Are you open to the idea of of a Caucasian, a white person identifying strongly with, say, African-American people or, or some other uh, minority group uh, possibly, you know, spurred on by like, a, you know, a social justice cause, wanting to be a part of it, feeling a deep empathy and deciding to identify with that community, not only in terms of like participating in some sort of um, you know, social justice uh, work, but also like actually taking on the, the, you know, the physical uh, look of that cult. Co- you know, this woman was, she was doing <laughs> her hair like a black woman. She was fully like trying to make herself uh, an African American. Like what's, where do you fall on that? <laughs> or do you fall anywhere? Are we still, are we still with the open question? I'm
1: okay <laughs> with the open question. Cause Here's the thing. I don't want to just step in that hole you just <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, I get it. It's really weird. Um, I have compassion for this mammal. Yes. <laughs> I really do. And every single one of us builds our identity from stories we can live with about ourselves. So in some respects, we're all like that. We all create necessary fictions about ourselves so that we can move through life and bear an idea of ourselves. And on that spectrum, she's not so different from any of us. So I have compassion for her. I think who to ask about, is it okay to embrace black identity if I was born a white person? Who to ask that question to isn't really me. I'm not the community from which that identity has been forged. On the other hand, there's plenty of writing by people of all persuasions that take race itself and hold it up as a question. I mean, Toni Morrison has written eloquently about the fact that there's no such thing as race, that it's a social construction, but I don't know that Toni Morrison would be the first person to stand in line for the rally, uh, for the woman you mentioned, you know right, so i I'm still gonna hold i'm gonna insist on this idea that I think we should keep holding that really weird question open and start listening better rather than deciding quickly. Do you know what i mean right yeah. uh, so i'm I'm listening to as many people as i can i'm I have my own thoughts and feelings about it, they confused me as well. <laughs> I mean, can I just stand up one day and say I'm a frog, and (laughs) I embrace frogdom? I don't know. Yeah, I do know. I think we're at a cool point where we get to ask these identity questions. So I don't want it to get shut down quickly.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I think so. so
1: Sorry, I'm not going to vote on that one.
0: (laughs) No, it's yeah, and I don't think you need to. I think like I just keep, I keep thinking that the more interconnected we feel, not only with uh, other people but with all. Of Earth and all of its creatures, you know, as hippie as that sounds, yeah. uh, The better decisions we'll make, you know, about how to live in the world.
1: It's possible. It's possible. Maybe it will be worse. I have no idea. But (laughs) you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote a pretty good essay about let her be, let her identify with whatever she wants to identify. She's doing good work in the world. Yeah. And I thought that was so interesting
0: kareem kareem's a good writer and a good Kareem
1: th- is a great writer yeah
0: i mean i read his essays whenever i see him he's always <laughs> me got too. he often has like a, a you know a surprising take like something that's sort of cutting against uh you know the the bulk of the noise you know and yes I, he's uh, he's a smart guy really thoughtful guy
1: i think so too and he, he appears to me to be at an amazing nexus of kinds of experiences so i'm really glad he's in the writing community Maybe I, should, he, maybe I should
0: try to have him over. He lives I in LA. I
1: totally think you should have him <laughs> Kareem,
0: for... Kareem, come sit in my filthy garage. Let's sit. Oh, let's,
1: please let's... have him over.
0: <laughs> I'll try to get, maybe I'll try to find a way. I don't know if he would do it, but you never know.
1: You never know. I just heard a rumor that Channing Tatum might talk to Roxanne Gay. So if that can happen, anything can happen.
0: Well, I saw Roxanne last night and I, I was seeing on Twitter that he somehow. Is it a rumor? Well, he somehow knows, you know, he knows who she is now because of her, her fandom. And, uh, I'm, I just, I would love to see video of her meeting him because I think she might just pass out. She might, I mean, who knows? I know. She wants
1: to hug him with her whole mouth. (laughs) I think his neck might,
0: you know. Yeah. She could, she could attack him. Who knows? She could, she could just, uh, you know, I would.
1: I would so get in line
0: (laughs) (laughs) sell tickets. Yeah. We could do like a pay-per-view of Roxanne Gay meeting Channing Tatum.
1: Yes. I'm for it.
0: (laughs) Um, so Ken Kesey and Kathy Acker, um, I want to ask you about them. You, you actually, uh, met them, knew them, worked with them a little, Mm uh, just like fun writer stuff. I always like to ask if, you know, when people have had experiences like that, if you could share maybe some experiences you had with those guys.
1: Sure. Well, they are, of course, um, among my favorite two dead people. (laughs) (laughs) And in my life, death doesn't mean what it means to other people, so they're still here for me. (laughs) Sure. Um, I, I had just the luckiest experiences that I really kind of bumbled into when I crossed their paths, but the important moments for me were that, You know, like driving around in a blue pickup truck with Kathy Acker because she needed sinus medication turned into, I had an authentic experience with another human being that sort of changed my life and my writing life forever because she said one sentence to me that led to our friendship. Which was? She said, you know, I was bemoaning the things that were happening to me (laughs) because it was a hard part of my life. And we're driving around. She says, this isn't the hard part. This is the part where you get ready for the hard part so you don't die when the hard part comes. And, I, you know, I'm driving the car and I'm having a kind of seizure. <laughs> such a strong epiphany that I'm almost seizure. <laughs> that was, you know, right in the middle of my highest drama in my life when such bad things had happened.
0: So this was, said, was this after the, just shortly after the loss of your, of yeah, your daughter.
1: Yeah, yeah. And she says that to me in the middle of my woe and something, it's like my ears popped and I thought she's right. You know, that this was a portal, not an endpoint, And so that's, that's the kind of thing that happened around these people where I was just sort of being a dork in my life. And, and it, they said something or did something that cut through and changed the course of my entire life. It was like chaos science, you know, a butterfly flapped its wings. Right. And my whole life just went, ah,
0: what about, what about Ken? Did he do something similar?
1: He, he's so dear to me. He's father, brother, lover. He's like the male archetype that I never thought I'd meet. And he had flaws too. He wasn't a perfect guy, but He was an amazing entity in my life because I'd come from a place where the male influence on me was terrible and abusive. And so I had antagonism there and rage and pain, like you said before. And he came through and kind of reimagined all that. And, oh, I hear an airplane. Is that you?
0: No, yeah, that's me. There's always always something. A police helicopter. (laughs) Who knows?
1: That was cool.
0: Yeah, maybe that was Ken. Who knows? He was it was. He's yeah, he's hey, doing a flyover.
1: Hey Ken. <laughs> um but what he did for he did for me, he did for several of us. He held a year long class in Eugene, Oregon. They talked him into teaching there, but his one stipulation was you have to buy a house we can all live in so we can all write together kinda hippie collaboration style and they did it. I still don't know how he talked him into that. Um, so what I learned from him besides developing a friendship with him after the fact well, was, can I, wait,
0: can I stop you? He made the university buy a house so that hit the class that he taught could all live in. the Yeah. Same house. Okay. You heard
1: that right. Wow. Cause he wanted it to be a collaborative novel and he wanted to bring the sort of old school commune idea in. Right. And, and he told them, I won't teach for you unless you make that happen. And they made it happen.
0: <laughs> That's awesome.
1: <laughs> I know. I mean, I can't imagine ha- that happening any other way <laughs> or time or anything. Well,
0: he had a, very, he had a, he had a gift for uh, creating community. Yes. To say the least.
1: Yes. And yes, I- he did. He's one of the most generous hearted people I've ever met in my life. Um He also he also lost a child. Yes. Did we you? bonded over that the first day we met.
0: You did, okay. Yeah, I yeah the,
1: the I think I wrote about I now I can't remember what's in my own book, but I'm pretty sure I <laughs> rendered it. The first day I was in the workshop, he came around the table and whispered in my ear, um he said, I know what happened to you. And Later we had private talks about dead children and he's one of the only people in my life that I could sit down and have an actual open conversation on the topic of dead children and art and life and love and not have the other person freak out or get sad or think it was morbid. Right. It, was, it wasn't It was morbid. It was an understanding of a kind of love and... Uh, it meant a lot to me that I could talk. It wasn't just a person I could talk to, you know, the whole time, every moment I ever talked to him in the back of my mind is like, this is Ken Kesey. This is Ken Kesey.
0: (laughs) Right. It's a good person to talk to. Yeah. (laughs) Did he still have his marbles? Like I've heard, I've read things where it's like, you know, all the drugs that he had done or something, you know, something like that, that he, and he didn't really write a ton in the, I guess the latter half of his life. He didn't publish it. You know, he had those, those two big books that were, uh masterpieces um you know one flew over the cuckoo's yeah. nest and what is it sometimes a great notion am i yep. me- yeah so those two well, were, my... i was just gonna he... say those two were like the the big books and then yeah, yeah things tailed off did you did you notice any kind of like was he sharp i mean you know did he have any mental decline
1: he was sharp he had all his marbles he was sharp intellectually he was sharp emotionally um the only but i would add to that is that he was suffering he was suffering physically every single day of his life. Turns out he was going to die shortly after that. So he was suffering mentally, physically, emotionally, psychologically. But he did have all his marbles. And uh, two, I think I wish people would think harder about this. Not you. I know you've thought about it, but other people. He wrote Cuckoo's Nest and Great Notion. Why does he have to do anything else <laughs> right. ever again? That's right. You know what I mean? And after he wrote those and I've had conversations with Chuck about this too, he became Ken Kesey capital K. And when that moment happens, I don't know how many people want to be that person now that I've seen what it feels like to be them. That is a very hard place to be. If you live in America, when you become the commodity of yourself, that is a that is a very harsh place to continue to live any kind of authentic identity. Because every nanosecond of your life, you are being people are projecting onto you that you are this thing that is theirs. And, you know, I challenge anybody out there to write Cuckoo's Nest, you know, who among us can write that book? Right. Or Notion, that's an astonishingly cool book, too. And so I i can tell in my voice I'm starting to sound defensive. No. <laughs> I just, you know, if I could write one book that's even half as good as either one of those books, I think everybody should leave me the fuck alone, you know? It's <laughs> right. like, just let me I'm be. not here to serve capitalism, you know? I'm not here to become the product. I don't want it, I don't care about it.
0: Or to become like the you know the, the caricature of myself. Yes, I think that's yes. what those... Because I feel like that happened to Hunter Thompson where yes. he sort of had to be Dr. Gonzo or whatever and uh, kind yeah. of fell into that. I mean, I think he sort of fell into it a little bit at the end where he... That's just the mode he was in and that's that's a dangerous place to be.
1: Right. And so Kezi went back to his farm with people he loves and helped young idiot writers <laughs> that were us open our own doors for ourselves. He, You know, he kind of pulled back and tucked in, and I'm okay with that.
0: Did you ever do psychedelics with him?
1: <laughs> You're a hooker.
0: I'm curious. I mean, yeah. that's, I'm genuinely. Yes, did yes he-
1: we did, but he his tolerance was so beyond our puny. <laughs> 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 the, the experience I had was nothing like, you know, I left the planet.
0: <laughs> did, it, did did you have any kind of insight? Did it Was it a beneficial experience for you?
1: It was kind of like an aboriginal drumming session sort of mysticism. If I had to, you know, like a mysticism that's indigenous. And it was on, a, it was outside and it was on the hill where Jeva's buried. And
0: his um, son, his son.
1: Yeah. So it was mysticism. It was old school mysticism or maybe beyond old school, like really old mysticism. <laughs> but it's not like hanging out with your friends listening to rock music having <laughs> sex, getting, getting right. up psychedelic not, it wasn't like that at all. It was more like you know, if you got if you did psychedelics with Whitman or something. <laughs> <laughs> and he told, you know, he told stories until no one was talking. <laughs> he just told stories, you know, about his life, little anecdotes and stories and that I think we would have sat there forever listening to them just to, you know, just to feel that thing that doesn't seem very available anymore in the way our lives are now. You know,
0: what, what is the thing?
1: It's re- it's relational. It's mammal to mammal. It's connected to the earth in ways that we seem to not have time for much anymore. Mm. Zero technology, Except it was a little bit like we were interfacing with our kind of minds and psyches the way computers do. So I don't know that it wasn't technology. Right. <laughs> uh, the more we learn about technology, the more I think it's more like us than unlike us. So that's why I said that. Um, and kind of a, well, these words all sound all woo woo, but kind of a sacred. Space no
0: it'd be like an authentic spiritual experience, I mean it sounds yeah. hokey to say, but
1: it does sound hokey, but that's what it was
0: that's what it was you know yeah. and, and if anyone out there doesn't believe, just uh, head up to Eugene, get some mushrooms <laughs> and and few do yeah, a few bongo drums, and talk to me the next day. we'll see yep. how you feel
1: <laughs> yep. you will see something and it won't be God. <laughs>
0: So um, any other like Kathy Acker anecdotes? Uh, I mean, like the pickup truck line. I mean, that's that's yeah, pretty, that was pretty huge. That's pretty huge. I mean, that's a, that's a well,
1: she, she swam with me and most people are scared to swim with me. The only other person in my life who's invited me to go swimming with them is my husband, Andy Mingo. And chlor- he's allergic to chlorine and he still invited me on a swim date. But most people I know are scared to swim with
0: Why? Because like, you're too good? You're, you have the...
1: Well, it sounds all cocky and shitty, but yeah. yeah.
0: You can do <laughs> You can do the flip turns. You got it all. You oh, go. yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How far can you swim?
1: <laughs> Pretty fucking far.
0: Like miles. You can swim.
1: Many... Oh, I once swam like Dorina Lake in Eugene because my boyfriend at the time capsized the sailboat we were on because he didn't know how to sail, and I was so mad at him that uh, when we were at the other side and they had to tow the boat and him back, I swam the entire lake cuz I was pissed off.
0: <laughs> See, like I'm glad you had that option.
1: Yeah. Could <laughs> work off. Work I wasn't get I wasn't getting in the fucking boat. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not riding back with you. No. Wow. no. It was kind of mean now that I realized what I was doing. It was really passive aggressive. <laughs> it was, but at least
0: you didn't like speak in anger, you know, like you had some time to cool off.
1: Yeah, I needed it, trust me. That was really intense cuz he he promised me he knew how to sail and he'd never sailed in his life. I found out later. He was just trying to impress the girl. And so that pissed me off.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Like, it's like you could have killed us. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> like that's I mean, there's certain like white lies that one can tolerate in the name of like uh, trying to be wooed or whatever, but um that, that
1: just didn't do it for me. Right. So- but swimming with swimming with Kathy was a big deal. She she you've seen pictures of her body. She was a she was a weightlifter and covered in tattoos and piercings and so Being in the pool with this astonishingly cool creature, (laughs) you know, like, I'm with her.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Don't fuck with me.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Look at this. (laughs) I'm really fast, and she's like that. So this is our lane, buddy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And she asked you. She's like, do you want to go swim?
1: (laughs) Yes. And and it was in a Best Western pool, so it wasn't even like a great, wonderful pool situation. I'm like, fuck yes, I want to go swim. (laughs) So we were in this little tiny pool like burning up the water.
0: <laughs> was she a good swimmer?
1: She was a punch swimmer. I don't I mean, can you pic- picture that? She yeah. almost almost closed her fingers. Not quite. So it kinda looked like she was punching and she had tremendously toned arms and biceps. So kind of looked she was a good swimmer, but there was a little bit of fight to it right. that I, I actually thought was beautiful, really beautiful. So but it wasn't a smooth thing, <laughs>
0: yeah, it wasn't like i mean I, I I picture you as being like a really uh like graceful swimmer, Like I ride, strong, but you like yeah. you know what you're doing,
1: I ride the glide, yes, okay <laughs>
0: um what do you you say you're working on two books now
1: uh yeah i have I have a second book with Harper coming out probably in a year or so that's uh sort of based on Joan of Arc uh
0: read vision it's, it's, it's a novel,
1: yeah that's a deep deep revisioning of that story and then the one I'm working on now in my home is related to another woman of great import to me Mary Shelley and I'm kind of revisioning her story through a novel too wow it's really fun (laughs)
0: That's awesome. Well, I, uh, i I love talking to you. It's been so I love fun talking to you. and I'm glad we got to, uh, you know, feature smallbacks in the nervous breakdown book club. And I, you know, I uh, congratulate you on all of your success and just wish you well on everything that comes, uh, you know, in the days to come.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me and saying the nice things. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you. You're you're really fun to talk to.
0: Okay, that is Lydia Yuknovich. Her novel, The Small Backs of Children, available now from Harper. You can find her online at LydiaYuknovich.net. Uh, she's on social media. Check her out on Facebook. Find her on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Lydia Yuknovich. The Small Backs of Children. Go get it. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget to sign up for the Nervous Breakdown book club over at TheNervousBreakdown.com. Don't forget to get the Other People app. I talked about this at the top of the show. This program has its own official app. Get the app. It's the easiest way to keep up. It's the best way to listen. Sign up for premium. Support the program. So... The only thing I keep thinking about is the this Im, the imminent baby. I hope you can uh, understand. I don't want to you know beat you guys over the head with this. It's not like I'm the first person on Earth to ever have a you know a child, but hopefully you can imagine how that could occupy one's mind as the day of birth draws near. Do we have everything done? Is everything all right? Is it weird that we don't have a name? Are we going to be able to do this? Is he going to be okay? Is my wife going to be okay? Is everything going to be okay? It's going to be okay, right? It'll be okay. Just take deep breaths. It'll be fine. Okay. It's going to be great. It's going to be fine. It'll be fine. Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? Non-stop in my head. Please remember that Christopher Smart died insane and in debtor's prison and that juna barnes wrote in bed while wearing makeup with her hair done that's it for now uh i've had a good time doing this program i had a good time talking to lydia i had a good time doing the monologue and uh, this is fun right now i'm elated i appreciate you listening i appreciate lydia yuknovich go get her novel the small backs of children i will be back soon unless my child is born in which case i have no idea when i will be back i don't know and you know who knows I'll be back, just I need to gather myself.